You're listening to the Substandard Model. Hello and welcome back. Today's episode's just got a bunch of tidbits and lots of little pieces of information. Um, it runs for about 30 minutes. There's circa 10 tidbits of information, 10 facts. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that amazing? That's about three minutes of fact. So I'd stay for the whole thing if I were you. If one is going to space, there are lots of things that space does to our body that we don't want it to do, right? So we'll go to space and then the lack of gravity, the lack of oxygen, the lack of various things will all do things to us yeah. that we don't want to happen. Well, presumably you've brought something with you to <laughs> Yes, but even... even, even and assume, made it! <laughs> even assuming, even assuming that you've brought all the necessary equipment, right? Yeah. Even if you're in the ISS, there's still a gravity issue. The gravity issue, I mean, we don't True. we don't notice how useful gravity is for keeping our body in check. But without gravity, things get a lot harder. I mean, we're not designed to be without gravity. No, no point has evolution planned for this. So yeah. we don't really know what's going to happen. And there have been some rather interesting effects on the body that gravity's had on people. And what I'm going to focus on is on the eyes. Okay, so the eye is made up of a bunch of different things, right? You've got your lens at the front, you've got the whole choroid, you've got your vitreous humor, which is just this sort of liquid, jelly liquid that the eye is just mostly made of. And then at the back, you've got your retina, which which records all the light. And that's the general deal. And under gravity, your vitreous humor can get sort of deformed and it can sort of change shape and your eyes can get really blurry over time. And these this effect isn't so well understood, one thing that's understood that's quite interesting is that women report visual deformation. So they report effects on their vision a lot less than men do. So when men go up into space, they often report after a certain amount of time, they can't focus on things. They can't see very well. Women, on the other hand, they don't report this anywhere near as frequently. So there's a good chance that the first crew to Mars is going to be an all-female crew just because of this effect. They're just The future of mankind was all men are just staying on Earth. <laughs> <laughs> and women are the only lambs allowed to go to space. Yeah. Um, but something else that I'm going to talk about now is one other thing that happens to your eye. And I want to see if you can try and explain why this happens. This was the first thing that people noticed when they went into space. This has been, this has been recorded on a bunch of different space missions. It's called LF, light flashes, also known as astronaut's eye. Okay. Right. And as people are going through orbit, as people are going, especially when they're traveling at high speeds, often, right, often astronauts report bright flashes in their eyes. And these can be very, very variable. They can be blue. They can be sort of diamondy. They can be yellow, pale green. They can be red. Often they're like spots. They're streaks, blobs, comets. People report all sorts of different, different shapes, but generally. Generally, they are already they are got an answer. Right. right. What is already your answer? Got an answer? Go for a few. Is there's it, a few different theories. Is it cosmic rays that are going in, into our retina? So it is cosmic rays. That's the main. That's what it is, basically. You gotta, but, be, you gotta be impressed, you know. I'm impressed. I'm impressed. But the mechanism is a bit more complicated than that, and I think you'll really like it. So cosmic rays, for anyone that doesn't know, they're basically the types of radiation that are emitted from the sun and from loads of other bodies, and they fly mm. around everywhere all the time. Uh, you don't need to know much detail, but they're just sort of bodies of radiation emitted from stars. And they're one of the reasons we have the Aurora Borealis, for example. They go through, they interact with the atmosphere, and that's that creates the Aurora Borealis and the Aurora Australis. Also, 
Um, they are, there's loads of cool things that are made of cosmic rays. And when they go into our eye, into our vitreous humor, that's one of the causes for LF, right? But what do you mean by that, Sam? Like, what do you mean? Like, the cosmic ray goes into our eye. It's not light. We can't see it. So how does it affect our retina? Well, either it goes into our retina and stimulates it directly, as in it literally, like, hits a receptor and causes an electrical signal and tricks our retina in for thinking something's happening. Or, possibly, it goes into our optic nerve and it tricks our optic nerve into thinking it's being triggered. Or it goes directly into our visual cortex, into our brain, right? Into the back of our head. And then that tricks us into thinking we're seeing something. So if any of these places get affected with cosmic rays, it's possible that we could think we're seeing light. There was one theory which the ancient Greeks knew about, and they theorized that it was to do with literal light being generated inside the eye, which obviously isn't how it works, right? Right. Right? Clearly, that doesn't make any sense. It's not like you're generating light inside your eye, right? Maybe you are. Maybe you are, Henry. I'm I'm just thinking. That's why I'm pausing. The leading theory, I, I would say the leading theory for LFs is actually not is actually not the direct simulation of your visual cortex or your neurons okay. or your retina or your none of that. It's not actually the leading theory. Probably it causes some of the LFs, but most of the LFs are caused by another process. Do you know what this process is, Henry? What is okay, wait, wait. So only the astronaut who's got the the flash in their eyes, astronaut eye, they are the only ones who see this light. Yes. Is it just because the cosmic ray actually hits them in the eye and then it generates photons in the eye, is it? I mean, you're waving your hands in the right direction, but there's a specific effect that that, that you know about. I know you know about it. You've told me about it before. Cherenkov. Yes! No. Cherenkov! Cherenkov! It's no. Cherenkov radiation in your eye! That's it! <laughs> that's insane! Yeah! That's That's got to be deadly, though. It's no. it's a tiny, tiny bit. It's not enough to be deadly. It's enough to be noticed. <laughs> so Cherenkov radiation is when you have a particle and it travels so quickly, you get a flash of light because you've got what is essentially the equivalent of a, a photic boom, like a light boom version of a sonic boom, which is incredible. That's one of the theories, probably the leading theory for why you get like LFs, light flashes in astronaut eyes. That is super incredibly cool. Why does water make a shirt darker? Oh, you love this question, don't you? I love this question. You I know the answer to this question. I'm coming into this for the first time on this podcast, an informed member of this scientific community. All right. Why does water make a shirt darker? Well, okay. How about since me, who doesn't know what the answer is, you? how about you try and get me to figure out what the answer is by guiding me there? Well, first of all, tell me, what, what is our question? Oh, our question is, so, you know, when you have like a shirt and it's like, let's say, let's say blue and then you get really wet and then you look down and your shirt's like a lot darker than it is. The observable color of your shirt is now a darker shade of what it was before the water went on it. I think everyone gets that. I think right. that's, that's reasonably. Yeah. Interestingly, it's not the shirt getting darker. What? But it is. I know it looks like it's getting darker, but the shirt is uh-huh. not the only part of the system. You behind the shirt is also part of the system, right? I think this is a nice way of putting it. The water does not make the shirt intrinsically darker. The water just makes the fabric appear darker, the fabric of the shirt appear darker, because it makes it more transparent so that you see the darker objects behind the fabric. Like it's less reflective. What? Oh, and that's why if you have a white shirt, 
then he gets wet. It doesn't get darker. You just see your nipples. Actually, no, I don't like that. More transparent is bad. I'll, I'll, I'll talk you through it. Right. It, it's, it's less reflective. We'll go with that. It's less reflective. What? We'll start with less. it's less reflective. For God's sake. It's less reflective. So you okay. get less photons coming to your eye from the shirt than you did before oh. because the water is somehow preventing the photons from coming yes. off the shirt. Yes, that makes sense to me. What is a shirt made of? Like fundamentally, what is a shirt made of? I'm going to try and make you understand. And then hopefully if the, hopefully the listeners out there, they follow you in your, your quest to understand this. What is, what is a shirt made out of? Occasionally cotton, but mostly polyester nowadays. Am I right? I should, yeah, okay, okay, fine. But like, fun, like what, what would the surface look like? You know how you get a microscope and you look at smooth stuff and it turns Fiber. out it's really rough. Yeah, I'm thinking rough. I'm thinking fibers. I'm thinking hairs. I'm thinking small patchwork of threads. I'm thinking little, like I'm thinking very fluffy. I'm thinking all sorts. So, would you say you get a lot of variation in refractive index there? See, I'm tying into our previous question. Oh uh, yes, I would say you get a huge amount of variation in refractive index. So you get lots of interactions with light, like per unit time. Like a photon is bouncing all the way around in those fibers. Yeah, that that seems. Uh, that makes it's sense. not a smooth surface. Anything but a smooth surface is a right. Shirt. You also see this stuff with like, if you, for all of you out there who do organic synthesis, where you've got a an oily chemical in chemistry, and you're separating it from uh, aqueous or watery chemical, and they're sort of mixed a bit together, and it looks cloudy. And the reason it looks cloudy is because it's got lots and lots of little bubbles in the mixture of oily chemical suspended in watery chemical because they don't mix. Um. Oh Another place you see it is quartz. So the natural state of quartz, quartz being a rock, quartz has got lots of little bubbles in between it. So even though you can get really lovely quartz crystals, which are perfectly see-through, you can also get other quartz crystals, which are just sort of like white pebbles. And the reason they look like white pebbles is because they've got lots of uh, bubbles in them, which means that you get lots of variation in refractive index, lots of sort of chaotic random interactions with photons which means that light bounces around all over the place so you don't get clear clean transparent like photon travel so Um, it bounces around in the fibers of the shirt which makes it not see-through yes that's the reason they're not well if they were see-through then it would just go straight through the shirt Uh so the fact that it doesn't well a wet shirt is see-through i thought it was darker well it's darker and see-through like if you've got a white shirt right oh, oh so we're not doing one at a time you know, the we can do both if you want it's, it's it's related wet shirts are darker and they are see-through the reason that they are see-through and darker the see-throughness like when you get a white shirt wet you can suddenly see your nipples under the shirt yeah i said that yeah that's the cool. key part when you've got multiple reflecting surfaces what you end up with is a lot of light coming back to the eye uh, yes. some of the light going through but most of it comes back to the eye and it comes off at random uh angles but what happens when you get it wet is that the water fills the gaps using the power of surface tension it creates a smooth uniform surface across all of those crazy fibers so it fills in the gaps between the fibers and then it creates a uniform surface with like a you know least tension in the water tending to the smoothest surface it can because that's in the nature of uh of water and surface tension it creates a smooth surface over the fibers and what that means is you can get more travel of photons just straight through straight through i.e you can get more light going through to the person but you also get more light coming out of the person so a light that comes off your nipple can now come from the nipple side of the shirt to someone's eye via the shirt because the shirt is smooth on both sides okay you get that and the reason it's it's darker darker. yes that's the reason it's darker a because you get less reflection 
very small amount less reflection, but you get less reflection. The key, the main part is total internal why reflection. Get, why do you get less reflection? Because most of it's going through now. Oh, I see. I see. It's a flat okay. surface. Okay. The main reason it's darker is because you get more total internal reflection. Okay. Okay. And total okay. internal reflection is a process by which photons of a certain angle, generally a large angle, when they're trying to leave a surface from a denser medium, like a more dense material, and they're trying to travel from the more dense material into a lighter material, i.e. from a, a watery, wet, heavy shirt back into the air, the photons trying to travel from that denser one into that lighter one, um, there's a chance that it will it will just bounce off the boundary. So the photon won't be able to break through that boundary layer just because it's traveling at such a shallow angle. And that means that the less photons will be able to travel back through the, the boundary layer. So you'll get less photons coming to the eye. Okay. So so the reason it's see-through is because it's water. So there's less fibers getting in the way. And scattering it. Yeah, scattering it. Light can go through, hit your nipple, come back out. The reason it's darker is because some of that light that goes through the water bounces off the other end of the water film and then it goes bouncing around inside the water and then it gets to your eye. No, it doesn't go bouncing. It can, it can go straight. It can get bounced off the water film, could bounce back and forth in the water film, or it could bounce off the water film, bounce back into you and you just absorb it. Oh, I see. I see. But okay, it doesn't get to your eye. Some of it will get to your eye because some of it's traveling at a shallow enough angle that it dance, doesn't bounce off the yeah, film. But, but, not, but not as much. And that's why it's darker. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Nice. Lovely. 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 Carrots make concrete stronger. Nah, you're joking. You, you thought I was joking, but actually... I the first time I heard this, I thought he was joking. It blew his mind. Basically, so you're, when you're making concrete, you need three ingredients. You need water. You need, th- you need something called aggregate, which is basically just, just random stuff just that you add. And then you need Portland cement. So you need cement, water, and aggregate when you make concrete. If you add bits of carrot, so tiny bits of mashed up carrot or beetroot, or probably parsnips, or another root vegetable, but not potatoes. Not a, potatoes. I don't think potatoes. Don't but, you I mean, can try it, okay? <laughs> if you have potatoes, your cement, disaster. Too disaster. starchy. We talked about house. this last time. It's too starchy. <laughs> it just doesn't feel very fibrous. I mean, people always tell you, you eat your carrots, and you'll you'll have nice shits, and you'll be all fibrous. But if you eat potatoes, you'll just get fat, because they're all starchy. And That's what they tell you. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like potatoes don't usually do the things you want them to do because they're too, too too delicious. But but beetroot and carrot would would work pretty well, and they create these little nano sized particles, which increases the amount of calcium silicate hydrate that can be generated when you're making mixing these together. So when you mix them together, you actually have stronger concrete. And we all know that calcium silicate hydrate is essential for concrete strength. Well, you do now. We and, do now, uh, and it's. I think it might provide some sort of like a nucleation site based advantage. Yeah, so it's the platelets in the carrots or the platelets in the parsnips. Not literal, I guess literal platelets. Are they platelets? Not, like, not not blood platelets, but like yeah. they're called they're called platelets here. They're called platelets, L- but they're like plates. bits of small cells, right? Yeah, I think so. Bits of fiber, and then that's they strengthen it so much that when you're mixing the three ingredients together, you need forty kilograms less cement than you would to make one kilometer of concrete just because it's the, the and that's the a lot of cement strengthen it so much more yeah it is a lot of cement that's i mean think portion. about a meter by one meter it's that's big but 40 kilograms of cement is a lot of cement and you, and you know and if you're saving that per cubic meter 
Now that's environmentally friendly. It's a lot of money, I'm saying. I don't know. I think that's it's it significantly reduces both the energy consumption and the CO two emissions, according to Professor Mohammed Safi. So, thanks to him, we have carrot concrete. Carrots make concrete stronger. Butterflies have a real problem with cooling down in the sun um, because their wings absorb a lot of heat from the sun. Butterfly wings keep cool in the sun. Basically, butterfly wings contain veins and uh, these veins contain a thing called insect blood, which is called haemophil. I've made a mistake. It's actually called hemolymph. It's, yeah, it's, 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 like, it's like bad, but it's not, it's not, it's not good. Some butterflies have small little hearts in their wings which pump this haemophil through their veins. These veins have got chitin coatings, which means that they've got better thermal conductivity than the rest of the wing, which means that the veins can absorb heat from the rest of the wing and then, ev- and then um, disperse the heat through the chitin in the veins, which means they can uh, disperse the heat into the environment and cool the butterfly wing as a whole. Um, we've taken infrared images of butterfly wings and we can see clear red lines on the infrared images showing that there's more infrared being emitted from the vein-like areas. There's also these things called scent pads. This is commonly used by male butterflies to attract female butterflies via, uh, you know, expelling some scent through the scent pad. Um, But also, the scent pads are really useful for thermoregulation in butterfly wings because scent pads contain many millions and billions of nanotubes in them, um, which also contain some haemophil. Um, and it just is essentially an area where they can release a lot of heat, uh, like in the veins, but in a circular area on the wing. So I want to ask, do they need to get rid of heat because of the wings moving? So like, I know that... Because the wings moving, what? it's from the sun, generally. Oh, fine. Because I know that bees have a similar system. But that's because when their when their wings beat, it creates such a high heat that like that it will kill them if they don't have a cooling system. But butterflies, so is it just because they they soak up too much, they absorb too much sunlight? Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So what do they say? So they so they use the wings as a place to irradiate, kind of like Stegosaurus plates. As a test of these butterfly wings, researchers beamed a laser on the wing scales. Their temperature rose. Um, but apparently butterflies can't feel it and they don't care, so it's totally environmentally friendly. Um, but when the laser lights warmed the butterfly's veins, the insect flapped its wings or moved away from the heat. So basically they're very aware of the of the fact that they're getting too hot in certain areas and it is an actual significant problem for them, especially because some butterflies, I said they've got this heart-like organ, this little heart in their wings, which pumps the haemophil yeah, around the veins in their wings. that's by far the coolest part. That's going to be like heavy. That. It's going to be heavy, and it makes it difficult for a butterfly to fly. So there must be an extremely high evolutionary pressure in order to push this uh, heavy heart-like object into the middle of a wing when you want it to be light and able to be flapped around a lot. Um, so, mean, so clearly, there's evolutionary pressure for it, and it must e- be important for the function and health. Even in butter, like the butterflies you mentioned, like what what butterflies were these tested in again? Hair streaks, right? Hmm. These were these were tested in hair streak butterflies, right? Yeah, yeah. So in both in two types of hair streak butterfly, they found the the heart organ, um, and most both butterflies they've just got the the hemolymph. But I swear, like like they're, they're not even they don't even live in that hot areas. Hair streaks, like this is just all butterflies. Yeah, that's really. I, I, I'm just so surprised that they like. Is it because their maybe their wings absorb loads of heat because of some? Yeah, because of the way that they produce 
their colours. It just surprises me. For those of you who don't know, that butterflies have uh, nanomaterials on their scales, um, which means that the scales are actually grey. Like the materials that make up the scales on a butterfly, because butterfly wings have little little scales on them, yeah. um, the materials that make up the scales in the butterfly wings are actually grey. Um, but the reason we see such vibrant colours is because when light is incident on the scales, the scales have sort of little tree-like structures on them, which are like maybe 20 atoms high, these tree-like structures, right? And these tree-like structures mean that when light hits it, light gets stuck in between the little tree-like structures and only certain frequencies manage to come out of the tree-like structures, which means some butterfly wings reflect more blue light and some butterfly wings reflect more red light because the tree-like structures are designed in such a way that they absorb more blue or more red light. Yeah, it's essentially a genius move. But I guess that would, I mean, that makes quite a lot of sense as to why they would absorb a lot of heat, to be honest. But I, I would expect them to have little tubules or little veins or something. But the fact right. that they have a heart in their wings, which you're right, I mean, it must have a huge advantage. And like insects don't tend to have hearts. Like often they'll have At some all. sort of pumping. Well, they'll have some sort of pumping mechanism, but, but, but yeah. often, like a lot of insects, because they just have a massive sack. Yeah. Like mean, their, the, their the circulatory system is super basic. It's just yeah, open. The wing, it's heart, like a the wing heart, the wing heart beats a few dozen times per minute, so it's a significant heartbeat. It's about twenty-four times a minute. Yeah, I mean that's 40, in you know, twenty-four to forty-eight. Yeah, that's like a super fit human. Yeah. Here's a fun fact: baked beans are often not baked. And they are actually stewed in the United Kingdom. Pretty much all of the baked beans in the UK are stewed. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> That's the worst fact I've ever heard in my life. No one thinks baked beans are baked like, in the world. Like no one. Thinks but they are. <laughs> they are in some countries. They originally were. That's more surprising to me. <laughs> <laughs> like in the US, I think. I think if you make baked beans, you generally bake it in the sauce. I think. No, sorry. That's a shit fact, and you said it. You chose. You chose that one. I love baked beans. Aren't actually baked; they're stewed, but they're also sometimes baked. You've probably heard about this, but it's another really cool piece of evidence. It's saying why humans are so such language machines. It's called Fockhead Box Protein P two. Okay, also known as Fox P two. I have P2, heard of this, but not yeah, the mechanism. It's one of my favorite proteins in the world. It's absolutely amazing, and I think it provides some really cool evidence for this whole linguistic relativity language of thought thing. Because it's a Fox protein, right? So this this is essentially to do with neuronal development. It, it controls how at what point our neurons decide to branch. And we don't know the exact mechanism because the exact mechanism would be far too complicated for us to understand. But we know that people who don't have the FOXP2 gene do not have the ability to construct language in the same way as us. There's a family called the KE family that had a, a mutation in this particular protein. And that meant that they couldn't really understand or process language in the same way. And that, then that led to a whole, a whole bunch of research onto this one protein, you know, the language protein, the language gene. People really got excited about it, and they had a look, and they found it. And they found it in all sorts of animals, you know, chimps, songbirds, and they found more more human-like versions in songbirds, which are known to have more complex vocalization. And then my favorite thing that they did with this 
the special language genus, I mean, it's very differentiated from humans compared to the rest of chimps, right? So, I mean, if you look at humans and chimps, most of our proteins are the friggin' same because we're basically the friggin' same. We're like 98% the same. But the FOXP2 gene, very different. Undergone positive selection. No surprises there. And so if you plant the human gene, human version of the FOXP2 gene into mice, what would you expect to see? Uh, what, is it, what does implant the gene into mice mean? Well, you can get like a plasmid or a viral vector and you can literally put the human, the human strain of DNA, the human version of the gene into their genome. So they start expressing this new protein. Like you can literally go ahead and do that. Okay. So you've put, I mean, initially I just assume it wouldn't work that. somewhere along the line, but if it did work, uh, what you would expect is uh, um, the mouse to have an increased appreciation for uh, complex language. Yeah, I mean, pretty much. So they, they found what they expected. Mice gave a lot more vocalization. They actually had like slight problems with their brain development, but not significant. And they did, they exhibited more social behavior. My, probably my favorite thing they found. They found more complex vocalizations, but they also found reduced time to solve mazes. Oh, there we go. That's nice. That's really nice. That's the gene that built all of human civilization. <laughs> What am I talking about? Sam. Yeah. You weigh 69 kilos. You sure. weigh 690 newtons, right? You weigh that much. That's how but I you mass say it. 69 kilos, right? Yes. I can bench 1,000 newtons. Um, how much is 100 kilograms? Is that what, more, oh, wait, that's like more than me, isn't is it? That, no way I can hold that. Sam yes. can't bench 100 kilos and other pieces yes. of information that we've gone through. Sam, yes. how much yes. would you weigh on the moon? The value of G for the moon. It is 1.6 meters a second per second. Booyah. Right, so you've got sixty-nine times one point six. You're you're about one seventh of what you weighed on Earth. So I'm um, less. But I what about less. your mass? That's My the mass. real crux of the question. Your mass. Do you, so want you a weigh sixty-nine answer? kilos in both situations? Right. <laughs> sure, boss. That's what they say. Yeah, they're like, do. your mass is the same, and then you realise you mass differently. Is that your final answer? Okay, the crux of the question, yeah, the crux of the question is essentially that you mass differently on the moon than, than you mass on the Earth. And your mass on the moon is, get this, slightly larger than on Earth. Why do you mass differently, Sam? You mass differently because as you're on, as you're, if you're on Earth, if you're on the ground, you've got all that gravity pulling you down. And as you get further away from the ground and you jump off a cliff, there's a big old energy that pulls you back down to the ground. That energy that pulls you down to the ground is potential energy. As you get further mm. away from the Earth, potential energy increases. Right? Because yeah. the potential for you falling and dying is just getting uh -huh. bigger and bigger. So uh -huh. you get farther and farther from Earth. Potential energy goes way up. Then you're on the moon. Whoa. Potential energy is freaking huge because you come all the way from the Earth. You could have fallen and splattered at any moment, and that would have been energy, but uh -huh. you didn't. But surely, Sam, you're gaining potential energy as you get close to the moon. So... Why does your potential energy actually go up when surely you're losing it as you accelerate towards the moon? Yeah, but you're not losing it as much because the moon's lighter, right? Good answer, Sam. I was just testing to see. So, yeah, you got you got more potential energy. 
And uh, E equals MC squared. We store potential energy, and it's mm-hmm. part of our internal energy, right? And yeah. every object has internal energy. Everyone. We, every object has a every rest mass. One. Yep, yep. But every object has an internal energy. And when stationary, that internal energy is just potential energy. When moving, that, that internal energy is potential energy and kinetic energy. So your mass is equal to your rest mass plus the internal energy mass, right? Yes. And you can yes. convert your ter- internal energy into mass because it is mass um, uh, just by applying a, a constant factor of C squared. E equals MC squared, which is the speed of light squared, which is absolutely huge. Yeah. That's why it's so neato that Einstein said E equals MC squared, because you can you can energy mass stuff, you know? Yeah, energy is mass, mass is energy. Get used to it. Fourteen meter long great white shark. He looks a lot like a sperm whale, but he's probably a great white shark. It's clear the people in Sam's impression had mistaken a shark for a sperm whale. What we found particularly interesting in this episode was sperm whale's ability to echolocate, making noises that sound like this. Good noises, guys. You guys know what echolocation is, right? It's a way of seeing using sound waves instead of light waves. In the same way that your eye receives a light wave that's bounced off something, your ear receives a sound wave that is also bounced off something. There's only one catch. Sometimes it's just silent, especially in the expanse of the ocean. So, how do you echolocate if there's no sound to go around? You could just scream. And listen out for the reflection of your scream. So that's what sperm whales do. But as you can imagine, because they're echolocating things which are very far away, the reflections of these sounds are very, very quiet. So, as with most animals, sperm whales have adapted. They've got special organs in their head called tragic names, such as melon and the junk and the spermaceti organ. You know what, I'll just let Sam explain how these organs work together to allow a sperm whale to pick up its very quiet reflected echo location sound waves so i I, my my guess is acoustic waves come to the melon and as it changes from the medium of water to triglycerides or fats that the the distribution of fats mean that it gets sort of selectively refracted into one spot in the center of the whale's head and that spot is somehow detecting these um so refraction Sound refraction. What? Where a wave slows down. Did you say sound refraction? It does say sound refraction, but again, that doesn't. Right. Okay. I forgot that. So refraction is where a wave slows down when it hits a medium, and depending on the angle that it hits the medium, it might change direction slightly just because of this decrease in speed. And it happens a lot with light, which is why you see when light going through a, a glass, it seems to be slightly shifted from the light outside of a glass. So you've got sound in water, whale's head gets vibrated, the sound wave goes from the water, goes into the head, changes medium, changes speed, that changes the angle which it's travelling, and so it gets focused into a specific organ which can interpret all of these different sound yes, waves. Yes, it calls it a sound lens. The sperm whale's head has the ability to focus sound the same way that a telescope lens will focus light. It must also be noted that those clicking noises that you heard earlier are loud. Like, really loud. Its loudest noise, codenamed the gunshot, is the loudest ever recorded animal noise. It clocks in at 223 decibels. 
which is 70 or so decibels louder than a jet taking off. This is especially impressive considering that decibels are a logarithmic scale. Although not scientifically proven yet, it's thought that this sperm whale noise could be used to stun prey. I mean, that's pretty cool. So they saw in animals that um, taking cocaine for extended periods of time made them want to take cocaine more, first of all. And it made them easier. Wait, which <laughs> where did they test this? Which animals did they get addicted with to mice? Cocaine? There was actually a really interesting thing where they said <laughs> they they on some tests with mice they got anim- like mice on cocaine, and they oh would God. give the mice a choice between cocaine and food. And the dopamine release from cocaine was to such an extent in mice that there were mice who chose cocaine every single time, to the point that they starved. Jesus. Yeah, so it's like that thing with water, where the dopamine release you get after drinking water after being thirsty for a very long period of time, right? Mm-hmm. The thing you get where you are eating food after not eating, after being hungry for a very long period of time, well, cocaine outweighs that dopamine release. So mice are choosing to just do cocaine as opposed to eating, and they starve to death. Drugs are so weird. They're like they're oh. basically like bugs, bugs in the system. They're like glitches in our evolution. Yeah. <laughs> it's really weird. Like, like all this chemical managed to hack the system and give us the pleasure receptors when they're not supposed to be working. What's scary about cocaine, though, is they... So in one of these experiments, in this experiment, they just changed the genetics of the mouse so that it expressed Delta Fosby more. That's all they did. That mouse who's expressing more Delta Fosby has never had cocaine before, though. Mm -hmm. Uh What they found with that mouse is that mouse wanted cocaine more than the mouse who didn't express Delta Fosby, because they said a greater drive or Mm -hmm. craving for cocaine, this mouse. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) i need cocaine man i don't know it's in my genetics (laughs) and they found that they could get the mouse on the same sort of high same sort of brain activity on one third of the dose of cocaine as the mouse who didn't have as much delta fosby wow which means that cocaine doing cocaine causes you to produce more delta fosby which causes you to want more cocaine which is kind of scary because cocaine's just a chemical and that's the kind of like system that you would expect a virus to take right like it feels complex you're listening to the substandard model 